want to welcome all of our uh, watchers and listeners from streaming video there in your living room, uh, place of business, wherever you happen to be. Maybe you're stuck in rush hour traffic and you just got your iPhone and turned us on. As soon as it picks up again, turn us off. It's the only time I'll ever tell you that. But give them a hand of welcome, can we? <clears throat> Amen. Amen. Now, this week is spring break, so a lot of our families are gone. Uh, they flew the coop, as they say, and a lot of the kids are gone, and uh, it's that time of year. I, I just want to, once again, before we get into this tonight, I want to just bring a quick word on the coronavirus issue, because um, maybe some are gone tonight because of that. And um, I want to encourage you again. I know there's a lot of, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to be a doctor, but I can read and I have common sense and I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay, um, it's pretty much like a flu and a lot of people that get it don't even know they have it. Let me tell you something. If you've got the flu, you know you've got the flu. And if you don't, if you, you know, if you don't have an, a, a compromised immune system in any serious way like, like that, um, or other problems that are medical, then let's don't let this keep us from the house of God. Amen? Amen? Let's don't let it. <clears throat> uh, really. Because I, I read, I can't remember the, the exact number of how many people die of a flu every year. But good grief, if we just looked at that um, and decided to close church every year when it was flu season, we'd be missing all kinds of church. No, but when it's flu season, we keep on coming. Come on, everybody. We keep on coming. And, you know, we just trust God. So I just don't want us to walk in a spirit of fear. I want us to walk in a, in a spirit of peace, wisdom, you know, common sense, caution, but not fear. Amen? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise that there's nothing to fear? Yes. Of course, here you are tonight. You're here. But um, anyway, I just, I think something, I cut a video today to be put on social media addressing this, and we're going to send out an e-blast letting you know all the precautions we're taking as a church. Uh, we're we're going to be providing uh, way more hand sanitizer stations, and uh, we've got a couple of people that are going throughout the building cleaning the doorknobs and the handles and all of that. We're, we're not stupid. We're just not going to walk in a spirit of fear. Amen. So, we're going to get into the Word of God tonight, the book of Hebrews, the second half of chapter 6, because I could not sail through the first half because we were dealing with once saved, always saved. And I, I had to take my time with that. But tonight, we're going to talk about God cannot lie. Do you believe that? God is not a man that he can lie. So, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Word of God tonight. And we pray that you will speak to us, teach us, minister to us. And Lord, help us to walk in the peace of God, in the joy of the Lord, and in your presence. And Lord, we need your help. I need your help to teach this. And the church needs your help to understand what we're going to be going into. Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. And just open our eyes and ears and hearts to understand and grasp the word of God. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight, and fear is not in this house. Oh, and by the way, you have noticed the stage is different behind me. How many of you did not notice that? Wow, okay. Your eyes are on Jesus. We painted the whole thing black. It's for the camera because it, it, it just shows better, and, and uh, that's all I'm going to say. Now. Last time we talked about the dangers of apostasy. You remember that? Apostasy. We learned that backsliding and apostasy are two different things. The backslider is somebody who professes Christianity and have been genuinely born again, but they choose to live a compromised life in one area or another. And uh, they, they know what the Bible says, but they just choose to not do it. And they backslide. We, we, that's the way we put it. I like front sliding. Amen? Moving forward. But they're backsliding. And when you backslide, it means you're falling back, you're sliding back from the truth. 
And it's a bad testimony. And God chastens them, but he does not disown them. Can I be clear about that? How many of you have had kids and lived to tell about it? All right. Then how many of you have had kids that did things you told them not to do? Now, that's all of you who have had kids. All right. And how many times you, you, if they really went out there, you thought, did I really give birth to this person? Really? Come on. Because God thought that. I read about it today in my devotional. He thought that about Israel in the wilderness. And he tried to hand them over to Moses, and Moses tried to hand them back. But how many of you can say, though they went way out there and broke my heart, Never did I get to the place where I would disown them. Okay? Now, they may have disowned you for a while, but you don't disown them. Uh, You never say, you know what? Uh, You're on your own. I'm done with you. Don't wear my name anymore. You're not going to do it. Uh, For the most part, you're not going to do it. Um, So why would we think God would do that? He doesn't. If you backslide, God has a woodshed, and God will take you to that woodshed. And he will whoop you in a way that is unique to you. He knows how to whoop each person best. He knows what matters to you most. Uh, And and so God will take you to the woodshed. It says in Hebrews and other places, if you are without chastening, then you're not his child. Because he chastens every child whom he receives. So he chastens. But the apostate is different. The apostate is the person that totally disowns Christ. I don't know him. I don't want him. I don't believe in him. I don't lean on him. It's all false and fraudulent. I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's hard for me to even say that. They renounce Christianity and they openly and verbally denounce Jesus as Savior. I've seen a handful of people do that in my life who I thought knew him. A handful really less than a handful, who truly apostatized, okay? We learned in Hebrews, this was the position we took, that the writer of Hebrews is never saying the apostate truly knew Christ. He was close. He tasted of the things of God. He witnessed the moving of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you're saved. Listen, I've seen people witness the movings of God and be changed none, not at all. Miracles are not a guarantee that somebody's going to go, wow, God's real, I'm saved, I'm in. No, it's not a guarantee at all. Because in Jesus' day, he did the greatest of miracles, raised the dead. And what did they do? They just attacked him. And they never believed. And they never came to him. So miracles don't. There's one thing that saves a person the conviction of the Holy Spirit after you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you look up and you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sins and come into my heart as Savior and Lord. And when you do that from your heart, you are saved, period. But the apostate gets close and around it on the periphery, but they never really fully come in. And when trouble arises persecution comes, they have to pay a social, financial, whatever kind of price for being around Christians and Christianity, they quickly walk away. I think of the parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. Uh, Those that fell on the hard soil, the seed that fell on the hard soil, when trouble or persecution comes, they walk away. That's the apostate. The writer of Hebrews distinguishes between those two. He's dealing with apostates, not backsliders. The writer of Hebrews continuously warns the Jews of his day to not apostatize by returning to Moses, but to come all the way into Jesus Christ, give your heart to him, and be genuinely saved. Because they were Jews who had been raised in Moses' Mosaic law, the rituals, all of the animal sacrifices and so on and so forth. They've been raised in it. It was in their DNA. It was in their innermost, innermost. 
And so they start coming towards Christianity. The writer of Hebrews says, look, you're close. Don't go back to Moses. Don't apostatize. Come all the way in. He says that they reject Christ. They are, quote, near to being cursed, and their end is to be burned. Yikes. I didn't say that. Did you read that with me? Wasn't that up there? That was in Hebrews. So what does that mean, Jeff? I'm not sure. I think it means to burn. And where? We can only assume hell. Okay? Do you really believe in hell, Jeff? Of course I do. Jesus talked about hell. Is it easy to talk about? No. Is it hard to wrap your mind around? Very. But is it true? Jesus said it, so it has to be true. Now then next, the writer turns to the true believers. Everybody say, that's me. me. Come on, do it better than that. That's me. And he addresses them. And he says in verse 9, but beloved, that's talking to you, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. In other words, I've been talking about people that weren't really saved. Now let's talk about the things that accompany real salvation, though we speak in this manner. In other words, the author knew this. He knew that the genuine believers were not apostates. He's very conscious of two distinct groups within the church. Those authentically birthed of the Spirit and another group of nominal believers who had never come to the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's the same in churches today. Remember a couple of Sundays ago when I talked about the wheat and the weeds the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember that? How many of you remember that? Please tell me you remember that. Good. All right, that's a couple of Sundays ago. That's the parable that Jesus taught. He said, you've got the wheat, which are real believers, and you have the tares, which look like real believers, and sometimes act like real believers, but they're not. And when they're first coming out of the ground, you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares. Only when they come to full maturity and it's harvest time can you tell the difference. So in any given church service, anywhere in the world, you're going to have real believers and you're going to have a handful of people who are religious, but they don't really know Jesus Christ. They don't know the Lord. They're religious. And sometimes they don't know they don't know the Lord because they're going through the motions. Some of them teach Sunday school. Some of them are in a pulpit. Not many, but some, oh, I know it to be true. I know it for a fact. Some are in pulpits. They've never been saved. They, they made the ministry a career choice. The ministry is never a career choice. The, the ministry is God's choice, not a career choice. It's God's choice. He lays his hand on a man and raises them up, but it's never a career choice. But there are many who make it a choice. And they go in and they don't know the Lord. And you got the wheat and you got the tares in the same building, going to the same functions, eating at the same fellowship meals. Uh, And only the return of Christ will show the real difference between the two. So by means of these warnings, be careful, don't apostatize, uh, get in there with Jesus, really give him your life. And so by these warnings, all professing Christians should examine themselves to see if they are truly in the faith. And having done that, then the Bible says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If you're really saved, how many of you believe you're really saved? You've got the fruit. You know, you're walking with Jesus. And come on, I need to see more hands than that. You're making me nervous. There we go. You have an altar call right now. But here's the deal. He says, when you're really his and he's yours, and the Holy Spirit witnesses to your heart that you're a child of God, all right? Then he says, hold fast your confession of hope without wavering because he who promises what, everybody? Say it with me. Faithful. Try it again. He who promises? Faithful. He who promised to save you is faithful. Now, next, he turns his attention to encouraging the true believers to continue on in their Christian labors. He said, if you're a true believer, let me talk to you about your involvement in the work of the Lord. 
Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. Now, the word minister there means served. You have reached out and touched the saints, ministered to the saints in Jesus' name, served in some capacity or another, all right? You're, you're involved in ministry. You're involved in the work of God. He wants them to know that all they're doing for the Lord is not in vain. Those who are true believers doing the work of the Lord are going to be rewarded. Everybody say rewarded. I mean, you're going to be rewarded. It's a guarantee. If you're involved in the work of the Lord, there is going to be a reward that only Christ can give you. He can only give you one of those crowns. No one else can. Amen. It says, let all that you do be done for the glory of the Lord. In light of that, he exhorts them to avoid spiritual, uh uh-oh, laziness, which apparently was setting in on them because the next verses are going to show us it was setting in on them. Everybody say lazy. I don't like the word lazy. It bothers me. You know what word has always bothered me? Sloth. It's a King James word for lazy, slothful. That to me just reminds me of a snail crawling down a sidewalk, melting as he goes. Sloth. The the last thing I want to be called is a sloth, right? I mean, to me, it just, ugh, sloth, okay? But that's the word that the King James translators translated from the Hebrew word and the Greek word that has to do with lazy, slothful. We desire that each one of you, verses 11 and 12, show the same diligence, everybody say diligence, to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish. King James would say slothful. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Oh, that's rich. How do you inherit the promises of God? faith, but you got to mix faith with patience. Now, I'm going to get to that in a minute. So let's talk about sluggish or slothful. It is the word for lazy. He wants every Christian, including us tonight and those watching and listening later by radio, our radio friends, he wants us all to know that he's talking to us about don't, don't get spiritually lazy or slothful or sluggish. Watch out for it. But show the same diligence and hope that the mature believers of that day were showing that he is talking to in this letter. Be diligent in the Lord's work and don't become a sloth. Wow. Sluggishness, slothfulness, spiritual laziness can creep up on you. You know, you can wake up one day and get kind of cynical. Well, I've been doing this, teaching this class so long, going to that church so long serving in this capacity or that so long, you know, the thrill is gone. Uh, I just don't feel it anymore. And and you say, I'm just going to kick back. And spiritual laziness was apparently one of their key problems. In 5.11, Hebrews 5.11, he's already said, you're dull of hearing. Well, dull here is the same word as sluggish. So they were sluggish in their listening. They were lazy in their listening. They would listen and do nothing about it. James said this, don't merely listen to the word. Don't merely listen. Great message, Pastor Jeff. I love watching you sweat. And you go out and and you never do what you heard. He says, don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then he says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like somebody who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forget what he looked like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and that is the Bible, that is the word that gives freedom, you'll know the truth and it'll make you free. But whoever looks into the perfect word that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing what they heard, 
They will be blessed in what they do. He's telling us an undone word is a wasted word. If you hear it and don't do it, it's a wasted word. You know, you may have been you know, on your feet, hooting and hollering and clapping because the preacher said some good things and there, there could be a huge reaction in the congregation, a great response. But see, I don't care how, how, how high you jump. I care about how you land and walk. That's my calling. When you land, I want you to walk right. And see, walking right is, if it blesses you that much, then do it. Put it to practice. Say, how can I put this message into my life? How can I weave this word into my daily lifestyle? How is this word going to change me? How am I going to respond to this word? I can ask you, how are you going to respond to this word tonight? James is saying, and it's really weird, it's a great illustration, the mirror thing, because he's saying it's like you're, when you look into the Word of God, you open your Bible, there it is, it's in the morning time, you open your Bible and you start reading. He said it's like you're looking in a mirror. How is that? Because you're seeing the places in your soul that need to be changed. You're looking at imperfections. I hate the mirrors that enlarge your face especially under a bright light. It's like, no, don't do that to me, right? I mean, women, they have these mirrors. They got two sides. One of them is normal and the other one is you are under a magnifying glass and there's a bright light on you and any imperfections jump out and say, boo. And you go, when did that appear? When did that wrinkle arrive? How did that... It's not a great experience. That's why a lot of people don't want to go to a church that preaches the word because it's a mirror. It's a mirror, all right? And you look at it and you go, wow, I need to readjust this. I need to fix that. I got a zit here. I've got a problem there. That's sagging. This, this, uh, oh my gosh, look at the things that could be better. But then he said, you're like a person who sees all that And then you stand up and you walk away from your mirror and you forget completely what you saw. And so nothing ever changes. Okay? So you put that word down and you forget, wow, I needed a little repentance here. I needed to forgive somebody over there. I needed to walk a little tighter in this area and that area. I needed to spend more time in prayer. Whatever it is, the word speaks to you. That's why we need it every day. Because every day it's corrective, it blesses us, but it corrects us, and it helps us to stay on track, right? And so if you love the Lord, you'll love his word, even if it corrects. Don't shout me down now, right? I mean, that, and, and that's why a lot of people won't read the Bible. They will not read the Bible. And, if, and that's why our culture wants to push it away and hide it, and suppress it, and muzzle it. Because when the word is preached, or taught, or read, it is a mirror on the whole culture. And they don't like what they see, and they don't want to see what they see, so they'll push it out. But the child of God welcomes the mirror, and then based on what the mirror reveals, they make changes. But the writer also says, hey, not only are you lazy and you're listening, lazy listeners, but you're lazy in your works. They become like the guy sitting under the palm tree on some Caribbean island with Jimmy Buffett playing in the background, sipping a margarita, letting life slip on by without doing anything for God. We've gotten physically lazy with the works of the Lord. It's true that in any church, I don't care who you are, some better than others, but still, the majority of people are not involved. It's a handful of people that do all the work. That, that's just a, a, a stat that has been true forever. We want to see the handful of people grow. My calling, part of it, is to convince you you're called. And to see you get involved in the work of the Lord. He said, he said, look, I want you to get up and get after it. Put feet to your faith and become diligent in the work of the Lord. Get involved in something God is doing. Amen. Use your gift. 
Do some Emmanuel labor. Quit wasting your time because time is short. Christ is near. He could appear any time. And we want to be, we don't want to be caught messing up. We want to be fully involved in the work of the Lord uh, when he returns so that we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Not thou good and faithful pew warmer, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Now, I got to put in here that good works don't save us. It's important to remember that right here because we're talking about being involved in good works. You're getting lazy in your works. But good works do not save you or me. We, we know that, but I think so often we don't really know it in our knowers. This is one of Paul's mantras. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it was a gift from God, not of good works, so that you can't go boast and say, I did this and that, and that's what saved me. No, no, it's a gift. Everybody say the word gift. It's a gift. And if you give anything for it, it's no longer a gift. If you give something back to God and say, all right, now I'm going to church every week, so that's part of what's going to save me, then salvation is no longer a gift. No, it's a total gift. You can't give anything for it. It was purchased by the currency of the blood of Jesus. So the New Living Translation puts it this way. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Are you glad that God gifted you with salvation? Amen. He gifted us with salvation. Amen. But here's the deal, everybody. Catch this now. While good works do not save you, they are the evidence that you have been saved. They are the evidence you have been saved. For instance, Paul wrote just two verses later in Ephesians 2, verse 10. We just read 2, 8. Now in 2, 10, he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Another version says, which God prepared before time began. Wow, that's a mind bender. Okay, now catch this. When you got saved, you became a new creation in Christ. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all, 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 all has become new. A new. Why are we a new creation? Here's why God did it not just to get us to heaven, but he did it that we would plug into what he's doing in the earth and become a part of it. Good works are those works God is doing. And it's like jumping. Have you ever tubed down a river? Have you ever inner tubed down a river? I I used to do that a lot in in Austin at the San Gabriel River. And I can remember jumping on that tube. and, And when you get on that tube in the middle of the river that's flowing, it's no longer you carrying you. It's the river carrying you. The river is carrying you downstream. You're just along for the ride. It's carrying you. And all these sights and scenes and sounds are going by you as the river carries you where it wants you to go. When we are saved, the psalmist said, there is a river which makes glad the city of God. What river? It's the flow of the Holy Spirit. And you know what a real Christian is involved in the good works of God? We're just spiritual tubers, inner tubers, flowing along in the river, doing the works of God until Jesus comes again. And it's no longer us carrying us. It's the river carrying us. I want to be carried by the river. I want to flow in the river. I want to go where the river takes me, not where I want to go. I want to go where the river takes me. And that's the way I've always tried to live. So every Christian is literally created, born again, to be involved in what God is doing. And that's why James says again, listen to this, in the same way, faith alone, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Necros, dead. But somebody will say, well, you've got faith and I've got deeds. James replies, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. 
In other words, you say you got faith without deeds, James says, and I'm telling you, your faith is dead. Because my faith is alive, and the way I know it is, it's manifesting in deeds. Because faith is really a verb. It's an action word. If you have Bible faith, it's going to move you to be involved in, in good works. I mean, I wasn't saved long at all before I was involved in good works. Out on the streets, witnessing, doing this and that and the other. I was in the ministry within a year after I was filled with the Holy Spirit. At 19, I started preaching. Why? Because, listen, something happens when we get saved. It changes our nature. And we have the nature of Christ in us. And, and was Jesus somebody who sat, soaked, and soured? Did he just sit there? No. When, when, when God called him, Jesus began his ministry. He got involved. He, he was always on the move, town to town, city to city, person to person. He never stopped. The Bible says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not just barely in it, but abounding in it. James says, you believe there is one God? Let me tell you, big deal. Even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? If you have faith, but you're not involved in any way with what God is doing in the earth, you're not doing anything more than the demons. They believe there's one God. Isn't it funny? They knew who Jesus was before people did. We know who you are. You are the Christ. Have you come to torment us before the day? Please don't send us into the abyss. The writer of Hebrews is telling the Christians that they need to move forward. And that's the whole gist, really, of these first few chapters in Hebrews. Six chapters. Move forward. Let's get on with it. Let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and move forward. Let's grow. Let's get with the program. Let's get off the benches. Let's get onto the field. Let's carry the ball. Let's score some points for the kingdom of God. Good works that glorify God are supposed to be as common to the Christian as breathing. Listen to the book of Titus. Three times in the final chapter of Titus, Paul says this. He says, be ready for every good work. I wonder tonight how many of us are ready for a good work that comes our way. Be ready for the opportunity to jump into every good work. Be ready. Then, verse 8, he says, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. In other words, once your hand is to the plow, keep it to the plow. Be ready for the good work, and then when you get involved in the good work, maintain the good work. And yet again in verse 10, he says, let our people, that's us, also learn to maintain, sustain good works to meet urgent needs, that they be not unfruitful. Now, I will say I'll brag a little, I'll brag some in our church. There's so many people involved in ministry in our church, and I'm so thankful for it. I mean, we have so many ministries that flow out through this church, uh, into the culture, uh, to one another. So many people involved in, in so many different good works. But I guess I'm really focusing now on perhaps those that have not learned the joy of being involved in the work of the Lord. Can I tell you that I really believe something will always be lacking in your faith until you get involved in the work of the Lord. There's something, and, I, and this is from the authority of Scripture. This is not a Jeffism. There's something that doesn't develop in a Christian until you're involved in something that God is involved in. A work, serving somehow, somewhere, some way. Feeding the hungry, visiting the imprisoned, uh, intercessory prayer, um, encouraging people. Uh, good grief. Um, we have people that, that come and, and they, uh, every week, and they, they fix the, the, the handouts in the back of all the chairs. I'll come in here on Thursdays. I like coming on Thursdays and walking around the sanctuary and praying. And every Thursday when I come, there's a couple of people in here 
who, who are going chair to chair. Can you imagine the mundaneness of that? They're going chair to chair and just fixing the handouts that are in the backs of the chairs. And you know what? That's the work of the Lord because if they don't do that, visitors come and it looks like a mess. There's people that come and straighten the chairs. Uh, there's people that come and do practical, simple, lowly things you never know about. But God knows about it. And he sees it. Missions. I mean, there's so many avenues and tributaries flowing out from this church that that anybody could get involved in the work of the Lord. Be ready for every good work. Ready to jump in and then sustain it. Get involved. There is a joy to it. Listen, I'm hooked. I'm addicted. I'm addicted. It's a good addiction. I don't have to shoot it up, snort it, drink it, smoke it. None of that. I'm addicted to the ministry of the saints. I'm addicted to ministering God's word. I'm telling you, I'm an addict and I don't want to be set free because it's a good addiction. You know, do you know that in, in, in Corinthians, Paul talked about those, the household of Stephanus that was addicted to the ministry of the saints. There is an addiction that is holy. And, and it's when the, the work of the Lord consumes you And you say, wow, I love seeing people get blessed and lifted up and edified and exhorted. I mean, sure, there's warfare, and yes, there's disappointments. And yes, there have been plenty of times I've driven down the highway and resigned to God. I won't even tell you the number of times I've resigned to God. And God always says, come on, get off it. You know you can't resign. I mean, people will discourage you, and things will go wrong. And, 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 you know, the balloon of your zeal can be popped by one person who comes and criticizes or shoots you down or promises to do something and they don't do it. And uh, sometimes you feel very alone in the ministry of the Lord. But I'm talking about overall. It is a blessing. And, And any Christian that's not involved in some work of the Lord is missing out. Or the Bible wouldn't be telling us to do it because the Bible only talks to us in love. He goes on to use Abraham as an example of somebody who, by active faith, mixed with works, inherited the promises of God uh, that he made to him. He, he first points out what moved Abraham to believe and how we too can know that God's promises can be totally counted on. Look at verse 13 in chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Wow saying, surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. You're going to have your son, and from your descendants, there's going to be a mighty nation. I'm going to multiply you. God swore by himself that his promise to Abraham of a son was totally and completely trustworthy. Now, there was nothing and no one on earth or in heaven he could swear by greater than himself. So God swore, this is heavy stuff, folks. God swore by himself. He looked around and said, there's nothing greater I can swear by because I'm the greatest of all. So I'm swearing by myself, Abraham. I'm swearing by my own name, you will have a son. And your descendants are going to be so numerous, you can't count them. And it says Abraham believed him. And it says in verse 15, so after he had patiently endured, He obtained the promise. So there you go. Faith and patience. Now notice he had to mix patience with his faith. He patiently endured. Faith without patience is crippled. Because without patience, faith won't hang around long enough to get what it's believing for. Amen? Come on, everybody. This is good stuff. I need this. Faith and and patience are the dynamic duo that obtain the promises of God. How many people, and and I'm in here, I know I've done this, have had faith for something, but you didn't mix it with patience and wait around long enough, and by the time God decided to bring it, you had already lost patience and walked away. 
It wasn't your faith that was faltering. It was your patience. And so you, you, you walked away impatiently, and when God decided to bring it, you weren't there to get it. And what really hurts is that somebody else gets what you were praying for because you didn't hang around long enough. It's true. Abraham believed God, but also he waited and he waited and he was patient. Oh, yeah, he had some faith crises. He messed up. He lost his, his, his faith for a little bit and had a child out of God's will, but he got back in. And he waited, and he was patient. And when he's 100 and Sarah's 90, the cry of a baby split the night in Abe's tent. Wow. Everybody say faith has to be mixed with patience. Abraham said, the reason I believe God is true to his word because I believe in his character. He's righteous, he's trustworthy, he's faithful. The writer continues to talk about how God swore by himself. This is heavy. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now we know about swearing an oath like this. We hear people swear by something greater or more sacred than themselves all the time. Somebody is trying to cut a deal with you and you're not sure you can trust them. And they say, I swear on my mother's grave that I will come through. Well, we're supposed to go, oh my Lord, you've sworn on your mother's grave, so it's got to be true. Or how about this one? May God strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth. Or God is my witness, I'm telling the truth. You know, Jesus said, don't ever do that. He said, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. So don't say, by heaven, by God's throne, by Jerusalem. For you cannot, and don't swear by your head, you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply, yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the devil. Because when you swear an oath by anything, then you got to come through. And when you don't come through, as you so often don't, you're open for condemnation. The devil swoops in and beats you up for failing in your promise. So just say, yes, I'll be there. No, I won't be there. Yes, I'm going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Yes and no. But where man is not to do it, God can and God did. He swore by his own name that he will fulfill his promise to Abraham. And by, by extrapolation, he also was swearing because Isaac was a type of Christ and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore that Jesus was going to come out of that lineage. So he was also swearing by his own name. Not only am I going to send Isaac, I'm going to send Jesus, and I swear by my own name. Thus God, verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What's the strong consolation? God cannot lie. I'm going to give Isaac to you, Abraham. And when Isaac appeared, God was saying to the whole human race, as Isaac appeared miraculously from a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, a miraculous birth down the tunnel of time, I promise you, swearing by myself, I'm going to send my only begotten son. And the writer of Hebrews now turns this fact towards us who have placed our faith in Christ. In the same way Abraham placed his faith in a God who cannot lie, we too now place our faith in the very same God who has promised us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. How do I know I'm saved? God said so. How do I know I'm saved? The word says so. And God cannot lie. See, a promiser 
or a promise is only as good as the promiser. If you don't trust the character of the promiser, you're never going to trust the promise. But the Bible takes great pains to tell us what God is like. He's faithful. He's loyal. He's just. He's true. He cannot lie. He's love. He's good. He cares. He will never leave you, never forsake you. He'll stick with you closer than a brother. God can be counted on. And through his son, Jesus, God said, I promise you, swearing by myself, he'll save you to the uttermost. The reason I know Jesus is coming back is because the Bible says so. And I trust the Bible because I trust the God of the Bible. Amen? So he says, and we're closing now, he says, this hope that we have in Christ is the anchor for our soul. Verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's the deal about an anchor. You never know the value of an anchor until you need it. And when do you need it? In a storm. When the waves are rolling and the winds are blowing, that anchor that the ship has put down, it holds you steady in the storms of life. The anchor for our soul is the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote in Romans, he said, this hope will never leave us ashamed. We will never be ashamed that we put our hope in Jesus Christ. We will never be left feeling stupid. You ever been stood up on a date? How many of you have ever been stood up? Oh, boy, we got liars in the house tonight. Come on, how many, somebody, they told you they'd go out with you or they wanted to get with you again and they didn't show up, something like that, come on. Or stood up on a business deal, stood up somehow, but mainly on a date, because that really stings. You want to go out, baby? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll be, I'll meet you, come get me. And you go and they're not there. And you feel jilted. Listen, we've got a date with Jesus. He's going to come back. And here's the deal, he's going to show up. He's never going to leave us feeling jilted, stupid, foolish that we put our faith in him. Come on, everybody. He's coming back. Boy, the things I've got to look for to make my point. But, you know, I, I was stood up once. I, I was. And, and before I was ever married, this girl stood me up. And I, and I remember it was horrible. Oh, it just crushed my inflated ego. Yeah, I went knocking on the door, and she's not there. And, and after about 15 minutes, I realized I've been stood up, and there was no feeling like that. I remember going home and crying a little bit. I can't believe she stood me up. I mean, it hurt. I'll never feel that with Jesus. Amen? <laughs> All right, he tells us the hope we have when we close now. The hope we have in Jesus enters where the eyes can't see, behind the veil. That's talking about the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory rested. And only the high priest could once a year go in there to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's it. Anybody else was struck dead. He says, our hope has gone through that veil into the very Shekinah presence of God. In other words, our hope in Jesus is going to carry us into the very total presence of God in heaven. And Jesus has gone ahead of us. Amen? Let's stand up tonight. Next week, we're going to meet Melchizedek. And I'm going to talk to you about Melchizedek, and he's going to matter to you. He's a strange cat, let me tell you. Melchizedek is a weird guy. Um, a good guy, but very strange. And we're going to look at it next time. Let's lift our hands to the Lord tonight. Can we just thank Jesus that he hadn't stood us up. We can put our faith in him, our hope in him. We can trust in him. He's gone ahead of us, church. He's there where we're going to be. 
Lord, we just thank you right now for helping us to be involved in the work of the Lord. Helping us to be involved in the work of the Lord. To always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Inasmuch as we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so, Lord, help us to plug in. Help us to jump onto that spiritual inner tube and flow in the river of life. Flow in what God is doing. Get off of the river banks and get into the flow. In the mighty name of Jesus. If you're thankful for the Son of God, you say, thank you, Jesus. Let's worship the Lord in in a chorus before we go tonight. The name above all names. Come on, everyone. Thank you, Lord. He is worthy of all praise. Yes, Lord. And my heart will sing how great is our God. One more time. He's the name above all names. Sunday is still going to be spring break, and so I'm going to need you to bring some people. Get out there. Listen, here's a work of the Lord you can get involved in. Tell somebody about the Lord. Invite them to church. You get them here, tell them. You don't want to drive, I'll come get you. Some of you just said, I ain't going to go. It's all I can do to get me there, much less somebody else. Listen, we got to get off our blessed assurance and get involved in the work of the Lord. People are perishing. Amen? Today, Brendan and I uh, went to a pastor's meeting at First Baptist, Burleson. Pastor's a great guy. Pastor Ronnie uh, Marriott. That's easy to remember. And he invited me and uh, Pastor Brendan, I call him my Aaron. He goes with me. Not that I'm saying I'm Moses. I'm he started. Anyway, we went. A group of pastors. There was the, the pastor of First United Methodist was there. First Baptist Burleson was there. Non-denominationals were, were there. Me and a few others. And we had good fellowship. And one thing that came out is how crucial it is that we are sharing Jesus and seeing people saved. It was just one of the main key points of our meeting. And so, folks, you have a treasure in you. Don't keep it to yourself. Invite somebody. They may shock you and show up and shock you more and get saved. Who knows? Amen? All right. Lord, bless the people of God tonight. Keep them safe in their journey home. Thank you for a wonderful time in your word. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night. We love you.